The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome to another super exciting episode of The Video Insiders. Dror, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you? Oh, I'm awesome. We are in the middle of literally back-to-back interviews. Um, This week, we had three in a row. I think next week, we've got, uh, I don't know, two. And over the next like three or four weeks, uh, you know, we're recording like like eight or nine, and we have a few yet to be scheduled. So um, we're on a roll. (laughs) We're on a roll. Yeah. And on that note, before we jump into our incredible interview, um, for any listeners that would love to come on the show, um, we would love to have you on the show. And, um, you know, don't assume that you have to be doing something in video encoding, or, um, you know, if you've heard us, uh, you know, talking to, you know, about distribution or, or CDN or... Or DRM or packaging or even audio. Audio is very important. Otherwise, we would still having we would still have um, silent movies. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And silent movies, you, you know, they can hold your attention for for about one and a half minutes. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Anyway, um, in all seriousness, uh, we would love to hear from you. And so, just send us an email to the video insiders at beamer that's b e a m r dot com and uh Dror and i uh will get that email and we'll get in touch with you and uh we'll talk about getting you on so i guess without further ado let's jump into our interview uh i am very pleased uh to welcome mr mxf uh, Mr. MXF is Bruce Devlin, and uh, Bruce uh, just has an amazing uh, uh, career in the industry. He holds uh, a very senior, very important role with Sempty. And uh, so, Bruce, I want to welcome you to the Video Insiders. Thank you very much, Mark and Draw, and I'm, I'm honored to be the, uh, the filling in your back-to-back interview sandwich. It's all in the filling. It's all in the filling. That's right. Well, Bruce, you know, why don't you uh, start out and, uh, you know, just tell t- tell the listeners a little bit about you and uh, what you do for SEMPTI. Excellent. Well, thank you, Mark. Well, so I am the SEMPTI Standards Vice President, which is a volunteer role, where basically I look after the standards pillar of everything that SEMPTI does. And so for those of you who don't know about SMPTE, it's the SMPTE, the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers. And really, we're like the the body that looks after global standards for how we interchange content. So if anybody's seen a digitally projected movie in a cinema anywhere around the world, all of those digital cinema standards, they came from SMPTE. If anybody's been interchanging stuff using an SDI interconnect, all of that was done in SMPTE. Uh, if you've ever used timecode, that came from SMPTE. If you've ever used an MXF file, I'm deeply sorry that I inflicted that upon you, but it seems to have been reasonably successful across the entire industry. MXF, that came from SMPTE. So SMPTE really looks after these, these big platform standards that allow you to interchange content 
between broadcasters, between cinemas, uh, getting stuff onto origin servers. So all of that kind of big platform stuff uh, Simpty's been doing. And as we look into the future, we're looking at HDR, immersive audio, and all those other things to make certain that when you open a file coming from upstream, you're pretty certain you're going to be able to use it. So it seems that Sampti is uh, doing uh, only standards. So why do they need the VP standards? I mean, you're the boss. Yes, I, you know, I'd love to have absolute power and a cattle prod to persuade people to agree with me. But unfortunately, um, although I've got the cattle prod, there's no batteries in it. I'm not allowed to use it. Um, <laughs> Uh, drawer, drawer will loan you his batteries. I'm extraordinarily useful at the next meeting. So I'm sure we've all had the experience of having 60 bright people in a room, each of whom an expert in their field, all with their own personal opinions, and you put a contentious item on the table, and you're fairly certain that you'll get to some agreement in, you know, five or six short seconds. Or is it hours? Or is it days or months or weeks? Uh, it's years. It's <laughs> and that's one of the challenges, really, about uh, Simpty nowadays. Um, we Back in the hardware standards days, because I, I know a lot of people listening to this will have built hardware or used hardware, uh, we used to write down the designs, and before we took our chips to the fab, everything had to be working in our heads. We'd done extensive simulation. Everything was documented. You make the chips, you hold your breath, you put the first one in the test system, and you hope to goodness that things going to work. Um, that life cycle basically reflected a lot of what Simti used to do and how Simti used to work, uh, because that's how we used to build products in the video industry. You know, just 10 years ago, we were fighting physics. Whereas now, as you guys know, and most people listening to this know, if you can think of it, you can probably get it going on Azure or AWS or you know one of the cloud services. You can probably get a software version of it going pretty quickly uh, using free credits. So you know the world has completely changed in what we can do quickly. So Simpty has to try and reflect that. So you know these smart people who disagree about the right way of doing things, we have to find a, a better way to encourage them to come to agreement quickly so that the, the standards we need for tomorrow can be done fast enough to be relevant by the time they're actually put into use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we'll touch uh, a bit later on, on um, the process of actually um, making those standards and how it is driven by, uh, by companies, by uh, people who have interest in the fields, by um, a consortium. Um, and, um, and that would be an interesting topic. But first, you, you mentioned those um, physical interconnects and... Uh, I think uh, if, if you look at the industry, it kind of goes through waves or, or cycles of, of innovation. Um, we started with, with analog equipment and then went to uh, digital equipment, and now everything is going to um, IP. So kind of uh, every 10 years or 20 years, there's this cycle that everything is being replaced and there's a lot of activity. And then for a few years, there's kind of a, rest period where everybody's, you know, trying to get the stuff stable and use it. And there's kind of incremental development. Um, to me, it seems that right now we're in, in the, in, 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 inside one of these, uh, big waves of innovation and, and changes, uh, both, uh, when it relates to content creation and also, um, distributing this content among uh, all the players in, in the value chain. Um, do you feel the same, and, and what do you what do you think are the main trends in in this wave of innovation that we're having now? 
Oh, excellent. I, you did tell me that this uh, this podcast was going to be six hours long. Good. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> for six hours for the first question, and then we'll go on. Because <laughs> that's, a, that's a big old question. Um, and I'll, I'll start with a quote from somebody else, actually. Uh, Jeff Rossiker of, of Avid was on a panel, I think it was at NAB, and um, he said something which made me chuckle. He said, you know, we're in a state of constant disruption now, and we'll be in a state of constant disruption from this point onwards. There's not going to be any eruption anymore. And I thought, oh, that's, that's A, quite witty, and I wish I'd thought of it. But also, he's absolutely right. Because um, if we're not being disruptive in, say, the migration from SDI to IP, then we're being disruptive in converting distribution chains into supply chains. And if we're not being disruptive there, then we're being disruptive in production and having to shoot everything in something that's bigger than standard dynamic range rec 709 color gamut because we don't know where it's going to be shown anymore and then if we're not being disruptive there we're being disruptive in the display side that we know what the consumers can actually buy because if you think about the 80s and 90s the broadcasters were ahead of the consumers you know we could make stuff that the consumers couldn't see whereas now it's exactly the other way around that the consumers can go out and buy an 8k panel if they're rich enough or sell a car or a child or something like that um and you know they've got these massive panels, but there's almost no way of getting an 8K signal to them easily, um, and there's not much 8K being shot. So you are absolutely right that we are absolutely in a technological change area. We're in a consumer viewing habits change area, and if you follow the mergers and acquisitions press, then it looks like um, people who are unexpected are buying companies either bigger or slightly smaller themselves in an unexpected way. So even the sort of the whole business of creating and distributing content, that's disruptive as well. So actually, all those nice comfort blankets of certainty we had back in about 2001, they've pretty much all gone now. It's, it's very interesting what you said uh, regarding the, the consumer pool because uh, uh, the SAMPTI is, uh, SAMPTI organization is dealing with the standards for distributing uh, content uh, in the back end between uh, studios and production houses and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, all, all the, the people who are creating content and processing it. And it's not very much exposed to the, to the consumer. Um, but now, you know, this reverse uh, pool where the consumer has access to 8K and HDR and Dolby Vision and, uh, and, and, and all the latest technology, virtual reality, uh, whatever. And then the content creators and the production side are kind of racing to catch up. Absolutely. And in fact, part of the way Simpty does its business, it, it, we used to send out lots of liaisons to other standards bodies, and they were all nice and formal and PDFs. And then, you know, it took a little while to do the liaison. And it was all, all very gentlemanly. And it looked like, you know, something out of a, a 1960s uh, British business movie uh, from Ealing Studios. Um, whereas now it's, it's all quite different because... SimpTC's influence coming not just from other standards bodies, but also trade associations. Trade associations, for example, in the pro-AV space, who are doing work which is probably going to be relevant to production. I mean, that's, I, I don't think I can name names, but you know, take an example of somebody working in pro-AV who's trying to move HDMI over Ethernet, for example. And then we've got the SMPTE work on ST2110, which is really low latency movement of video and audio over Ethernet. Well, actually, you can imagine quite simply that there will be certain productions where you have to mix those two ecosystems. So SMPTE has to find a way of being both agile and friendly 
not just to other standards bodies, but also to all the trade associations that are out there who have a, a certain special interest that overlaps with this big, broad church, which is now the um, audiovisual professional industry. So it's we live in interesting times, as they say. So what has happened, um, or, or let me rephrase the question, how have equipment vendors um, adapted, you know, to this, to this new world where as you, as you started, you know, to say that literally you could spin up an AWS instance, conceive of an idea, you know, to do something in a new way, write some software. And again, in theory, um, have it very quickly in the market or at least available for testing, et cetera. Um, and this is in stark contrast to the days of black boxes, you know, literally black boxes in racks that, you know, took time to, to design it and source the components and then build it and then get it installed. And, you know, so what are you seeing in terms of how equipment vendors have, have adapted to this new reality? That's an awesome question, because I believe we live in a very multi-speed world at the moment, in that we still need some custom hardware. We still need special sensors to go into cameras. We still need special memory cards that hit the needs of those sensors that are doing really quite funky things at very high speeds and trying to do it with the minimal battery power. So there are still some custom hardware, um, custom hardware out there. But having said that, though, pretty much all the sort of manipulation of content, the reformatting of content, the you know, fiddling around with masks, etc., um, a lot of that's ending up in firmware and ending up in software. And I use those two words slightly differently because, you know, there are companies like uh, Xilinx and Altera still out there that have programmable hardware that you can program all of it um, to change its function relatively quickly, you know, like on, you know, hundreds of milliseconds, but there's also bits of it that you can modify almost on a frame-by-frame -frame basis. And one of the things I think that's very interesting is depending on the sorts of products that people are building, they tend to go either for sort of these programmable hardware solutions or low-level software or high-level software uh, based on some weird combination of how quickly they need to get their updates and changes into the marketplace. Um, and the faster they need to get there, the more likely they are to throw high-level languages and RAM at the problem. And also on power consumption. Because the other thing that you look at is, um, you know, if you've got some very exotic, super high-speed compression, you know, Beam is, you know, an, an excellent company in this area, um, you might be able to get stuff done really, really fast, you know, faster than anybody would ever think to compress a UHD movie. However, the flip side of that is a lot of resources have been spent doing that, and you'd never be able to do that in a handheld camera because quite simply the electricity cost of doing everything that fast uh, is too high. So on the one hand, where you've got not quite infinite resources at your disposal, you can throw interesting software techniques at the problem you're trying to solve. Um, and on the other flip side, where we're trying to get the absolute maximum out of your battery-powered mobile device, whether it's your latest phone or the latest camera from, I don't know, Ari, Sony, Panasonic, Canon, insert name of camera manufacturer here, um, you're trying to move, you're trying to balance the, you know, pixel, what's the right measure? It's like pixel frame uh, display persistence per milliwatt or whatever that, the right number is, you know, how much energy do you put per pixel? 
um, so that you get the maximum battery life out. Because as everyone who's ever been on set with batteries knows, that it's really embarrassing when you run out halfway through the only good take of the day. That's right. That's right. That's super insightful. And uh, Drawer, I, I think Bruce has been reading our internal email. <laughs> 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 right, right. Hardware. I, I think I, I forty-five at the back of my head. I guys, think I, I think I think you have some insights you shouldn't have. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, you know, just to just to amplify what you said, um, we absolutely are seeing this on the video encoding side, where you either were 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 performing the video encoding function in software on. Um, you know, essentially COTS machines, you know, x86 and, you know, you might run them on Amazon, you might run them on your own machines, but, but, you know, it was, it was pure software or you had black boxes. It was pure hardware. And, and those were kind of your two choices. We're seeing and working um, very closely with a hybrid approach, developing a hybrid approach where we can leverage the best of what's available on silicon so that you can utilize those ultra low power envelopes take advantage of that you have density you have all of the the goodness of hardware but with the quality and the flexibility of software so what you get is literally the best of both worlds <laughs> you know um, now it's very hard to do this and it you know, there's a lot of development effort etc but this is absolutely where we see you know especially in the ultra high performance um, you know, your hyperscalers, your, you know, the social networks that are streaming, you know, literally billions of minutes a day and really an interesting insight. So thanks for sharing that. And it, it's interesting that at the uh, SIMPTI annual technical conference uh, last week, there were quite a number of papers, you know, along these sorts of lines. And in fact, for the things like the HPA tech retreat early this February, it, it's a trend that I'm personally seeing more and more of that you use the big software infrastructure to do something, I don't know, like, like train a, a machine learning algorithm uh, to figure out what look, which, which of your you know, cunning toolboxes of either rate control or upsampling, downsampling, deinterlacing, insert name of really, really hard problem here. Um, you train these uh, machine learning algorithms or these heuristical algorithms with a, you know, huge data sets. Um, because that's the really expensive bit, but you only have to do that once. And as I think you were saying, you can then put that into your preferred deployment platform, which itself might be software or it might be programmable hardware, or if you're really courageous, you might burn an ASIC. I think people still do that. Um, and then try and encapsulate that knowledge. And I think this is really interesting because I think back to you know, the early days of my career working for the BBC and Snell and Wilcox and Thompson and other companies where Basically, we were trying to do the same thing, but we didn't have the machine learning techniques. So basically, we'd get three or four wizards, lock them in a room, leave them there for a year. They, they figured out what rate control actually meant or what deinterlacing actually meant um, and tried to train the horrible ASIC or the horrible Xilinx that you were trying to hand program with a, you know, a schematic. And what came out, it was basically who was best at converting those four wizards' brains into the minimum silicon that you had available back in the day. Um, and in a way, the process of, of converting those wizards' ideas into um, a product, in, in a way, it's easier now. But because it's easier, you've got many more people to 
able to do it. So actually, it's actually more difficult now because it's still harder for the product community to differentiate themselves. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of noise, right? You know, there's solutions all claiming to do the same thing. And yet, um, you know, even just common sense says, well, they clearly don't all work equally, but how in the world can I, can I determine which one is best? Yeah. You need another machine learning algorithm to analyze the output of that one. <laughs> no, you need a machine to watch the video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's the uh that's the our new theory. goal. You have one machine that generates the video, another machine that watches the video, and we meanwhile you can go and take a walk outside. That's right. And that's that's what the simulation guys are doing, uh, the synthesis guys are doing. There's there's lots of interesting art online at the moment where people have done exactly that, where they've for example, I, I saw a demo, I think it was from the, the Google team. They uh, programmed a machine learning algorithm to know what a bird looked like. Then they programmed another machine learning um, algorithm to try and synthesize birds. And these two AIs basically uh, fought against each other until the thing synthesizing was producing things that the thing that was the bird recognizer recognized as birds. And actually, there's some photographs online on one of the, the um, Google research sites. And... I think I'm quite good at this, and I couldn't tell the difference between the real birds and the synthesized birds. These things were as close to perfect as you can imagine. It was, it's quite terrifying, really. Right, it is, and it's going to get worse. But uh, don't be afraid; we still have a couple of years uh, before they de- before they take over. That's my uh, before the birds take over. Yeah, oh, the, the, the algorithms will take over. You know, the problem is, you know, Mark, you mentioned black boxes, which were these, uh, you know, fixed function hardware. Uh, boxes in, in a rack that would do the yeah, video yeah. processing, yeah. and now it's all in software. But the next level is is the back are, are the black boxes of these algorithms, right? Algorithms, because, that's right. Because you don't know the algorithm if you're using machine learning, you train it to based on certain input to to get uh, as close as possible to a certain output, and then you know it um, it wires its own uh, neural network in a way that will give you the best output, but you don't actually know how it works. You don't really know what's happening inside. You can't really control it. So one day it might uh, get out of hand. But but that's uh, that's for another podcast. Um, let, let's get back to to video and and, and content. Uh, you mentioned that um, uh, the standards are mainly for um, transporting, delivering pieces of content from one place to the other so that uh, the person who's uh, creating that content uh, and then another person trying to uh, read or decipher that content, you know, they speak in the same language. Um, and, and we always say that, uh, that content is king. So that's very important. Uh, and, and, but the other thing that's very important is when this content eventually gets to the user, uh, what is the user experience of watching that content? Uh, finally, after uh, rendering on some kind of screen, um, uh, this uh, meets uh, the human uh, perceptual system and uh, needs to create some uh, experience. Um, so I know that Sympty is, uh, uh, deals mostly with the backend stuff of transporting files and streams from here to there, but how do you take into account the final uh, a viewing of this uh, content after it goes through all of those um, uh, stops in the in the processing chain and gets to the end user. Awesome question, and I think I'm going to um, answer with a rude word: metadata. Mm. And metadata is really difficult because you say it, and it's you know it's like a generic thing. It's like using the phrase AI. What does that mean? It doesn't really mean anything. And for for Simpty, uh, we actually have a special website called Simpty-RA.org where we give away all of our metadata for free. 
That's right, free, a four-letter word that begins with F that makes accountants nervous. It's one of those um, things where people associate SIMPT with PDF documents and standards, but actually we spend a lot of our time trying to get agreement between people about what things are and what they mean. For example, we're in the middle of the high dynamic range revolution. And there are probably four, maybe five, possibly more than that, different ways in which you might create an image or a series of images that have high dynamic range in them. And in order to know which one is being given to you, you need some kind of signaling. And that's where the metadata comes in. And curiously, uh, harking back to an earlier thread of this conversation, uh, some of those high dynamic range uh, metadata schemes came from upstream, you know, people trying to look at the production environment and what metadata describes the scene. And some of those metadata schemes have come from downstream, from the display end, figuring out what metadata does the display need in order to work correctly. And so one of the things that SIMPTE is involved in is trying to harmonize some of that metadata and trying to publish some of that metadata and what it means and how it's used. Um, so it, these are some of the big heavy lifting things that we do. But more importantly, um, there's, there's a couple of interesting things that we're spotting and something that I'm trying to provide services within SIMPTE, and that's things like controlled vocabularies, for example. Just imagine that not everybody in the world speaks English. So despite all of those efforts of the Europeans in the 1600, people will still speak their own language. And so you need to indicate, for example, what language the audio is in. And there are lots of standards for doing that, unfortunately. Um, additionally, if you have subtitles, it might be interesting to know whether or not the subtitles are in one of the two or three or four scripts that might be used in that territory. For example, Mongolian can be written down in Cyrillic script or in Arabic script. So even though the words are the same, you can write it down in two different ways. And as you go around the world in this increasingly global media industry of ours, actually, it's quite important to write it down in a way that the people doing production have written down the audio language and the scripts that are involved correctly. And then in the post-production, you don't change it. But if you do any extra dubbing or subtitles, that you correctly label those. And then when you get into the top end of the distribution chain, when you start to go into that you know, hub and spoke kind of model if you're OTT or the um, hub and hub model if you're a satellite broadcaster or the hub and not quite as many spokes, but quite a lot actually if you're a terrestrial broadcaster. So each one of the different platforms has a different way of distributing stuff. And often it's based on the languages and subtitles that are in the actual stream. So a nice piece of work done by um, a group called the Mesa Alliance, um, who's a group of post-production houses and vendors and um, other testing companies. Rather than looking at the 40,000 possible combinations of language and uh, uh, scripts used, they actually did a survey and tried to figure out what's actually used in the industry at the moment. And they published this thing in a, in a thing called the language metadata table. So this is a relatively small table of what's actually done in the industry. And the good thing about this is you now have an, a definitive list of what's actually done rather than leaving it to some engineer uh, for whom English is probably not their first language, looking at 40,000 different combinations and trying to find the best way to put those 40,000 combinations in a GUI so that someone who's not table, not, not technical, can select the right one. 
You know how many times in the industry I've seen that being successful? Not a big one. <laughs> and so what Simpty's trying to do is to say, look, Maze has done some fantastic work, but Simpty has the reach to go global and publish this thing in a way that everybody can get at. So Simpty and the Mazer Alliance are working together to figure out a way that we can take that controlled vocabulary and put it on our Simpty RA site. So it's now globally accessible as a downloadable XML or even globally accessible via API so that this thing can be genuinely used by software systems around the world. And I think for Simpty, this is actually a really good way of looking at the software world because there's many, many, many of these controlled vocabularies that if we could just get different parts of the supply chain to agree, you know what? We'd have consistent metadata that could go all the way to driving TV sets. Sorry, that was a really long answer. No, that's great. And, you know, Bruce, I'm, I'm wondering if this explains a phenomenon um, partially or maybe even fully that we have observed and, and everyone in the video industry has observed. And it goes like this. You need to build a transcoder, let's say. And, um, and, you know, it's very well understood what a transcoder needs to do. And, you know, anyone who's been in video for one day understands what a transcoder, what the function is, you know, the basic building blocks. And yet um, you go to, I'll just say service provider A, they're using the same codec, they're using AVC, maybe HEVC. Okay. They have the same HL, you know, they're using HLS. In other words, everything's the same and you deliver a product and they say, great, works awesome. Hey, thank you very much. You take that same product to service provider B, the exact same codec, exact. In other words, all of the, you know, the, the technologies and the standards, all the same, but your transcoder doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, you know? Oh, but it works on this set top box, but not this other one. Oh, but we have a slightly different way. Is, is, is this what you just described? Is, is that part of the problem? Is this sort of misunderstanding or misinterpretation of these 40,000, you know, or whatever the, the number is, variations of, of, of metadata? Yeah, that's a really good point, Mark, actually, because the, the metadata issue is, is one of the causes of these, you know, transcoders not quite doing the same thing or not quite working or the in-hopper being incompatible. Because one of the things I've discovered in my travels around the world is that a lot of the metadata that finds its way to the in-hopper of a, of, of a transcoder often comes from an asset management system where actually it was hand-entered as a description of what was going on when the ingest took place or the tape transfer took place or the original transcode took place to put it into the archive or into the servicing vault. And that's curious because that metadata felt okay to the human typing it in, but it was never validated and QC'd as instructive metadata to tell a downstream process how to operate. And it's still relatively new that these metadata-driven workflows are actually being driven by metadata. They're often driven by an expert human who's there to, you know, catch the transcoder as it falls on the floor, pick it back up again, dust it off, correct the spelling, uh, and, and carry on. So w one of my goals for Simpty is really to try and act as a central registrar for all of these workflows where you need, I don't know, consistent spelling of people's names in certain subgenres, or you need certain ways to describe color, for example, or you need to have a controlled vocabulary of aliases for certain things, um, or you need to describe the operating points of the only TV shapes that are allowed in a certain country. A lot of those are currently written in documents. Changing those documents typically takes 
months or years, then products have to somehow get that knowledge into their products, which typically takes uh, somebody purchasing the document, typing it into a header file, rebuilding and recompiling the thing. So it could be a two-year cycle between correcting the error and that corrected error then appearing in someone's product, just because it's a really bad way of managing metadata. So Simpty is a global organization that hopefully plays nicely with all of the different um, trade associations, the different standards bodies. Now, if we were to try and put ourselves in the position of being a central registrar for many of these controlled vocabularies, we might be able to get to a situation where instant fixes can be done so that errors can be proposed, assessed, voted on, because at the end of the day, um, nobody's all powerful. We have to make certain this is still about interoperability between systems, often global systems, but we can get the fix is done much more quickly and then have products which could maybe, I don't know, patch themselves just like updates are patched in software. You can patch your metadata to make certain that the, uh, I don't know, the, the talent for your show is now spelt correctly or the correct ID for your, your program now is associated correctly because we've got an indirect lookup to organizations like IDA and AdID that, that manage these registrations of particular IDs for particular programs. So this is super valuable. Why is there any reason someone would object to Sempty serving this role, or is it just an education? I guess I'm sort of I'm listening to you talk, and I'm like, well, why isn't everybody, um, you know, lining up and saying Sempty? You know, please perform this function, or maybe they are. I, I think there's two reasons. One is that we're we're still in quite a fragmented industry at the moment, where if a particular trade association gets their controlled vocabulary, we're still, I'm going to be rude here, but we're still in the tape mentality years where, you know, it's my tape, it's my content, it's in the box under my desk. And my dead body has to be available before somebody can get my tape off me. Um, there's still a certain element of that that's a little rife in the industry. You know, I've got so many knives in my back, an extra one's not going to hurt. So <laughs> although people who identify with that phrase, will um, they can stick another knife in me, it's fine. Um but we do have that kind of mentality. And so I'm trying to make certain that Simpty does what it says on the tin. We're, we're trying to be friendly to these other organizations so that other organizations like the Maser Alliance, they can manage this language metadata table. We're just a publisher that provides the infrastructure to allow others to get at it. And um, to be honest, I don't want an extra 7,000 committees each looking at a small metadata table. I'd much rather that the people who really care and love their metadata looked after it, because they will. And Simpty acts as a publishing organization where we find the technical, legal, and commercial way to play nicely with each other so that we can provide this service for the benefit of the industry. Now, let me ask you, I think IMF largely came out of... Oh, what a big question. IMF has quite a long history, actually. IMF was um, kind of being spontaneously developed by the cinema world and the TV world in parallel around the sort of 2006-2007 mark. And then over a number of really splendid lunches, because I was at many of them, I remember them, um, we decided that the world really needed to have a commonality of uh, cinematic and TV workflows. And this IMF thing that wasn't called IMF at the time, but this this mastering technology really ought to be common. And so at that time, uh, we kind of put the TV bits, which were largely how do you carry the track files in an interesting way that allows you to do very short time to air workflows. 
um, and some of the signaling that we needed, we, we put that in with some technology that had come out of the digital cinema world, and that got looked after by the ETC for a while until it came to SMPTE and then got standardized. And so really the, the thing that I find wonderful about the IMF community is everyone's very collaborative and everybody wants this one workflow to work because we know that if we start using words like supply chain, it would be crazy. You know, it, imagine that uh, every single truck in the supply chain of physical goods used different barcodes, used different languages. So, you know, the two trucks next to each other, one could only speak German, the other one could only speak uh, an African click language. Um, different barcodes, um, one could only use letters for their IDs, the other one could only use numbers. Uh, you could never have a common database. I mean, if you had that, it would be completely chaos. You'd never get your Amazon or your Google or your Safeway or your, you know, Target package ever delivered. But there are standards for these sorts of things that means that in the physical world, we can join this up. And IMF really is just a supply chain inventory management solution to minimize the amount of stuff you store and minimize duplication. That's really all IMF is. But because it's so novel in the media world, it's receiving a lot of press at the moment, for which I'm very grateful, actually. And so is Simpty, because you know IMF has to succeed if we're going to be able to cut the cost of commercially being able to deliver exotic material to small countries like Albania and Ghana and some of the languages that are you know, some of the countries that really don't have the financial might of America. And if we can start to deliver stuff in a commercial fashion to these very small territories, the thing that I am desperately hoping will happen is some of the producers and film directors from these countries that really don't get their work seen anywhere other than locally will start to come out of their countries and start to be seen by a global audience. And I think that will be just good for the media industry in general and might put a little bit of extra life into the vendor community and into the distribution community as well. Are there clear boundaries between, you know, areas of responsibility of the different standardization bodies or do you like uh, fight over standards? Yeah, no, I'm going to do this standard. No, this is going to be my standard. Uh, how, how does it go? Let, let us in on the... Uh, kind of uh, behind the scenes, uh, <laughs> the politics of... I think if I've got access to your email, you've got absolute insight into my email here. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relatively good-natured. Um, we, we do actually have a uh, an inter-SDO, inter-standards uh, defining organization body, which I think Hans Hoffman of the EBU set up, where we try to get the different standards bodies to talk to each other. And what, mm -hmm. I'm fairly certain that many people listening to this podcast will go, well, one standards body's boring, but what, 10 of you in a room? God, that's going to be... <laughs> it's actually very interesting, because if you think about, you know, SMPTE, as you've correctly identified, is kind of at the, the, the front end of the pipeline. Organizations like the DVB and the ATSC are pretty much about broadcast standards. Because mm -hmm. the... Um, it, in a very mixed world at the moment, we have people like the IATF and the W3C who we talk to because we've got to be play nicely on the interwebs. Uh, we have the Consumer Technology Association because all mm -hmm. the stuff that we've got to we, we want to see has to get shown. We're also looking at things like 5G and possibly even getting uh, some liaisons going with the SAE, the Automobile Engineers um, uh, uh, Standardization Body. Because you know what? If driverless cars come out, 
then certainly we're not going to be staring out the window as the driverless car. No, no, no. We're going to be staring at screens. We're going to be staring at screens. And, you know, it's a brand new entertainment and advertising opportunity. So Simti's looking at what is it that's different about driverless cars that means that we can deliver content into the driverless cars in new and interesting ways. And literally, if anybody listening to this podcast wants to get in touch with me, svp at simpty.org, to talk about such things, I'd love to hear. Because um, one of the problems of an... Indi- oh, there goes the phone again. Sorry, I'll start that again. Once the phone stops ringing. So one of the interesting things about being Simpty is, you know, you end up with a kind of echo chamber problem where Simpty members talk to Simpty members and because we're all smart people who believe we know everything, um, trying to get new ideas and blood into the organization basically means we have to reach out and find people with bright ideas who believe they want to change the world to welcome into the Simpty fold so that they can tell us that we're wrong. And I love being told I'm wrong because it basically means I've not been listening hard enough. So anybody listening to this podcast who thinks I'm wrong, and there must be a lot of you out there, um, let me know because Simpty would love to welcome you so that we can find a better way of entering this new software data-driven world where opportunities like driverless cars need to be provided with content. Simpty wants to do something and I'd rather that somebody from outside came in and told us the best way of doing it. Um, for those who are fortunate enough to be in a full-time position where you know their job is to represent um, you know, their respective companies um, to the standards bodies, I, I think often aren't they involved in more than one organization? So does some of this happen just you know naturally with some folks who might be involved in, you know, I don't know, uh, MPEG and they're in SEMPTI and they're in something else? Is the, do you see that? That absolutely happens. So, you know, probably at the top of the tree, we have organizations like ISO and the IET, where national bodies get together to set standards. And then you have sort of the next tier down, which is the national body standards organizations themselves, like ANSI in America or uh, the British Stand- BSI, the British Standards Institute in the UK, or DIN, uh, the Deutsches Institute for whatever it is. My German is not very good in Germany. Um, and then you have subgroups of those. So SIMPTI effectively is uh, is an affiliate of ANSI. Um, ANSI sets the, um, gives the rules for SIMPTI to operate, but SIMPTI itself is a global organization following ANSI rules that allows us to feed our standards up to ISO. So we're kind of at that weird level where our standards are truly international standards because some of them go directly uh, into ISO via a defined process and some of them are kind of you know corner case just for um, for, uh, for SIMPTI. But we do have a cross-fertilization. We do talk to people in the ITU. So the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, they look at things like what spectrum do you need to broadcast terrestrially or on satellites and a lot of um, that actually requires standardization and communication with SIMPTI. So SIMPTI's kind of carved out the the professional space going from a lot of production all the way through to not quite distribution. But we also have to play nicely with people like the ATSC and the DVB uh, because if, for example, our a brand new SIMPTI 2110 standard for putting professional media on IP. Uh, if we didn't have good signaling between those standards and the front end of ATSC and DVB, 
then you might end up with channel hopping that takes five seconds per channel. Mm -hmm. So we have to communicate carefully to make certain that the whole ecosystem gives a good user experience. And you know what? That is quite hard to do because everyone's got an opinion. And what we need to do is just make certain that everybody's at least had their say and find good ways for each of the different stakeholders to pass not just the content, but the metadata downstream so we can drive the downstream with good signaling based on metadata. There's that nasty M word again. Right. Nasty M <laughs> the nasty M word. And at the end of the day, it's all about collaboration, collaboration between the members of, um, of the standardization body, between members of a specific committee. Um, I was involved in a standardization body called WMF. That was the Wireless right. Multimedia Forum. And its its role at the end of the 90s was to set standards for delivery of audio and video over cellular networks. Uh, and this was before this topic was even handled in the, the 3GPP. That body was dealing only with voice and some data. And we were kind of uh, suggesting the standards for audio and video delivery over the networks, which eventually made it into the 3GPP standard. So from my recollection, it's uh, basically you come to the meetings, but uh, all of the work is done between the meetings, at lunches, uh, in the evening, uh, informal meetings uh, between the members. And then when you go into the room, everybody already knows what they're going to say and what the outcome uh, will be. Uh, do you have a similar e experience? But you're right. And th there's a couple of interesting things that you bring up there, draw, draw, which I'll just sort of highlight. One of which was that in the um, the technical Emmys were awarded uh, last th Wednesday, I think it was, and I had the privilege of being there. And one of the technical Emmys was given to the JPEG committee. Right. Daddy of, you know, all the compression formats, JPEG, 30 years old. And it was interesting that this story was told by uh, the, the original chairman. He said, basically, JPEG was formed because neither ISO, IEC, or any of the other standards bodies knew how to do this. So they set a, set a special interest group called the, the Joint Photographic Ex Experts Group, whose remit was to figure out how to standardize this thing. And when their work was done, they disbanded. Oh, well, well, most of that came true, apart from the when their work was done bit, because JPEG is still doing some outstanding work in the industry. Right, right. I think JPEG XS is the latest one. Absolutely. JPEG XS and JPEG HT, the high throughput variants. So, yeah, mm -hmm. there's lots of, lots of interesting work going on in JPEG. But what I'm seeing in the industry now actually also reflects that, that we're getting trade associations formed who have a particular and I'm going to use the words carefully, they have a particular selfish special interest. And I don't say that as a bad thing. I say that actually is a really good thing because if they have a selfish special interest, they will move mountains to make certain pay people pay attention to what they're doing. And often to do that, they have to show some level of collaboration because nobody wants to be locked into a single vendor nowadays. Right, right. So you have to show interoperability. You have to show that there is an escape route to a collection of partners um, that will support your bit of technology. And what then tends to happen is when that particular bit of technology becomes popular enough, suddenly you want to make it, take it to the next step. So then you, know, you bring it to someone like Simpty, sometimes as what we call a registered disclosure, disclosure document, which basically just publicizes what you did, but in a way that is fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory, and with all the IPR associated with it in a published public forum. And then if it becomes even more public, you then might want to properly standardize it so that international bodies can reference it. 
And that's when you realize that your technology has suddenly become really popular. If you get a country wanting to put it into some national deliverable for their national TV stations, and remember, outside America, um, a lot of TV and a lot of media that's distributed is often national in nature, with national bodies want to set national specifications for national. Yeah. And if you want to have that specified by the state, you need to have your technology in something that ISO recognizes as an international standards body. And that's where we see really successful but originally proprietary technologies come into SIMT uh, because people want to have national bodies reference it. That's right. And, and you, you described a, um, a very common process where, let's say, a company has a proprietary technology that's uh, very good and could be helpful to the industry. So they bring together a few other companies, and then they form this industry body that supports their technology, and they write some spec to describe it. And then they bring it bring it to SIMPTI or another standardization body who adopts it as is, or if they want to make it more formal, goes through a standard standardization process, which can later be adopted by, by national bodies, as you said. Um, and I think you can take, for example, uh, Intupix, who invented the, uh, the technology behind the uh, JPEG XS. So they set up this consortium called TICO and brought more companies in. And finally, it became... Um, a standard by by JPEG, uh, but 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 now we're seeing an, a, a kind of a different route, uh, and and this is related to our earlier discussion of uh, software and uh, cloud and ease of development, um, where a, a company or sometimes a group of companies bring some of their technology together, they create an industry body, they develop an open source implementation of that uh, joint uh, technology. And they make that open source available to anyone. So now they say, look, this is uh, the standard we've, we've developed. Uh, here's the open source. You can use it. You can change it. You can modify it. Uh, you shouldn't modify the bitstream itself because then it won't be interoperable with what we built. Um, and sometimes, you know, they add more and more industry player from that industry. And I think uh, um, um, uh, a very... Uh, a uh, unique example of this is the Alliance of Open Media. Uh, instead of going in the route of uh, suggesting a codec to MPEG and going through the formal ISO standardization process, they said, you know, we are a very large company. We are Google, we are Facebook, Intel, Netflix, all of those companies. We'll come together, we'll develop a codec, we'll open source it, and we'll use it. We have the power also to use it. We don't need a country to put their stamp on it because we are larger than countries, right? <laughs> all these companies have more users uh, than most of the countries uh, in the world. So they're very large, so they can uh, implement it uh, on their own. Um, do you see this as kind of a one-off thing that happened uh, for codec development because of certain royalty issues? Or do you think this is a trend that uh, will uh, continue? And in that case, what would be the place of, uh, let's say, formal standardization bodies? Uh, Simti introduced a process a little while back called the technical specification process, um, which is literally half a standard. And we did that to reflect exactly what you, you, you've said there, Draw, because we recognize that not everybody's got the, the power of the AO Media or the AOPEN group to, you know, to essentially muscle their way in and, and produce this international thing straight away. Often, technologies start much smaller. And what we thought a good thing to be would, 
would be if somebody has a great idea, they build it, they chuck it out on open source, and they start to get traction. And they may have some mix of bitstream or data model, you know, bitstream if it's flowing essence, or a data model if they're doing command and control protocols. Um, and they might actually have a protocol sitting on top of that data model, so they might have a RESTful implementation or a SOAP implementation or a carrier pigeon implementation or whatever, you know, whatever domain they happen to be in. Um, and they realize that as the thing becomes more popular, there are certain elements of the design that actually can't change anymore. And it needs to be a little bit more concrete than just having, you know, please do, the hash of the schema can't change from the hash that's in the open source repository. So we thought in SIMPTE, why don't we allow someone to get exactly halfway through the standardization process and then publish a specification and put it out there for public feedback? And so we've done a couple of these, and we think it's it's really useful because it allows you to really develop your technology super fast in the open source way. And that's really why we introduced the technical specifications process, because we want these innovators to be able to get their open source projects up and run and deployed and build a proof of concept. But as it becomes more popular, you suddenly discover you have to stabilize the middle bit. You know, it doesn't really matter whether or not your protocol is RESTful or SOAP or carrier pigeon. You really want to make certain that the bitstream for the essence or the data model for the control protocol is good and stable. And you want something a little bit more secure than maybe just the hash of the Git repo that you checked it into. And that's why we invented the TSP, the SIMPTE uh, technical specification, so that you can take the bit that you want to be solid. Let's imagine that it's a data model for a control protocol. And you go exactly halfway through the SIMPTE standardization process. So effectively, you do the easy bit where you give it the scrutiny of the wise and the good of SIMPTE. And then you literally publish it on the website. And we've got a few of these at the moment. If you go to simpte.org forward slash technical hyphen specifications, these are freely downloadable documents, so you don't have to pay for the finished PDF. And you can make comments on them. So we keep a, a GitHub repo where people can add comments, or you can email the proponents. And the goal really is to get these early stage bits of technology that look like they're going somewhere, and to take the bits that need to be stable and get them documented and get them some, some solid scrutiny. So that if you continue this trajectory of success, then actually the things you have to do to then become a fully blown international standard that you could submit to ISO, actually it becomes relatively trivial because you've actually got all of your ducks in line very early in the, the life cycle of this technology. And I'm pretty excited about this because there's a couple of groups we're talking to at the moment who've got interesting blockchain-y things that they want to try and bring to Simpty to, to try and exploit this process. This has just been an amazing conversation, Bruce, and uh, I'd like to bring it to a close um, with giving us, you know, have have you uh, give us from your, you know, very uh, preferred position um, in SEMTI and just your wide reach throughout the industry. Tell us what you see happening, um, some of the opportunities, some of the, you know, the threats, uh, 
et cetera. In the area of compression, you know, Codex, uh, we're in a fragmented world, as, yeah. as we've said multiple times. And uh, and it seems like we are now um, fully, I think everyone has accepted that we're in a multi-Codex world. So um, what's happening in the area of Codex? And then, you know, I, I, tell us what you see is going on in HDR. There's various standards and various approaches, you know, there. And I know that SEMPTI is, is actively involved, um, you know, with, with a- HDR. And, uh, and then higher resolution, you know, like even 8K. Not quite a thing in everyone's living room yet, but um, uh, Samsung is certainly working very hard, uh, you know, to, to push higher resolution panels and, and is coming. So, Well, let, let me start with the easy ones. So SMPTE has a, a complicated relationship with compression. Um, so on the one hand, we are the standards body for a number of compression systems. The, the two that are just finishing their, their standardization process at the moment, we call VC5 and VC6 for video compression 5 and video compression 6, which really is a tribute to never letting engineers do marketing. <laughs> um, and also to a codec that Microsoft uh, standardized in, in, I think it was in DVD, that was called VC1. VC1, <laughs> no relationship to VC1, right? Well, that that was the first of Simpty's compression standards from Microsoft. The, the VC5 came from the uh, GoPro community and uh, VC6 comes from Vnova. Um, so we have some experience in standardizing codecs. Uh, mostly we do the B2B stuff, if I'm honest. Uh, VC1 is a bit of an exception, but mostly it's B2B type codecs, although they do have some uh, B2C business-to-consumer type applications. But SMPTE also looks at the transport, whether it's on IP, or on serial di- digital interfaces, whether it's encapsulation in file formats like MXF, or whether it's the processing of those um, file formats, or whether it's things like specifying the metadata that needs to go into or be associated with those compression formats so that things like HDR work regardless of which of the um, compression types you're using. So actually, we do a lot with compression that's not just the the compression codec itself. And so we take high dynamic range, for example, um, we've there, there are four major ways or maybe five major ways of signaling what HDR you're using. Um, I'm not going to name them because it's just too boring, but just suffice it to say that there's several ways of, of putting high dynamic range into either a B2B or a B2C container. And SMPTE's got ways of carrying that metadata um, through both the uncompressed chain and the compressed chain so that you can have a consistent value chain, whether or not you decide to do all your productions live uncompressed, or whether you do all your productions in HEVC or AVC or AV1, whatever. We try to make certain that that metadata is consistent throughout the supply chain so that you know what each pixel triplet or quadruplet actually represents. And that's where the metadata signaling comes in to tell you um, that this hybrid log gamma RGB uh, triple value actually means something slightly different to, exam- to, for example, an HDR10 or a Dolby Vision RGB uh, uh, triplet. And that that's really important, um, especially as you also have another orthogonal access about the color space. What color space did you shoot this thing in? Was it in Rec. 709? Was it BT2020? Or was it P3? So each of those color spaces, again, requires the metadata. So 
whereas life was relatively simple back in the days when it was just HD and you were changing resolution and changing codec, now we've got these orthogonal axes of what high dynamic range are you using, what color gamut are you using, and then how's that being transported in a lossless or a lossy compression container. And, and SIMPTI is trying to look after that maelstrom of metadata to make certain that there is at least some harmony. So in terms of standards, we have the compression standards. We have also um, a lot of the work about defining the operating points for 8K, 4K in the different resolutions, and we work very closely with the ITU in doing that. We look at the metadata for describing what's being carried in those compression formats, and then we look at how that stuff's transported. And for all of those, I think of those as the platform standards, because uh, we're looking at you know real platform things upon which people build applications. And the Tokyo Olympics, much of which is going to be shot in 8K with high dynamic range and wide color gamut and high frame rate and will involve a number of different standards, uh, sorry, uh, compression standards and compression formats. I think that's going to really demonstrate the power of getting the platform standards right. But the thing that both excites and terrifies me in equal measures is if you look at the rate of change of technology, from about 2021, 22 onwards, there's going to be a whole maelstrom of different human-designed standards. We're not fighting physics anymore because the sensors can do everything and the software is powerful enough to do everything. We're going to be having man-made protocols and definitions that simply is going to be part of the solution to the chaos and not a cause of the chaos, I hope. So we have to find ways of identifying and defining and registering and publishing those protocols really quickly so that machines can almost do real-time lookups in the SIMPTI infrastructure to find the control vocabulary, to define, uh, to find the schema, to, to, to find the content that's necessary to parse all of these new things that the uh, machines are only finding out about at runtime. And I think that's pretty exciting for SIMPTI. I think it's interesting for a standards body to try and look at how we provide solutions for that. And if I knew all the answers, I wouldn't have to come back next year and talk to you again about what we've done. <laughs> yeah, and we really hope you will come back because this uh, has been a fascinating talk about uh, the standards and uh, the platforms for uh, all the uh, media uh, production and uh, connectivity that goes back, uh, that goes behind the scene. Uh, and I would like to thank you, Bruce, for. Uh, Again, fascinating uh, talk and discussion, and uh, we really want you uh, back here uh, next year to talk about uh, um, uh, the, the developments that uh, are going on in SEMPTI. Yes, we do. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Bruce. It's been absolutely my pleasure. I wish I had all the answers. I don't, but I've got some really good questions that will tee us up for next time. You have some good answers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Until next time, thanks for uh, joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank Bruce. you very much. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no cost HEVC and H264 transcoding every month.